and welcome to Act to Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. Again, this is a break from format. This is a new adult book, everybody, not a YA. So keep that in mind going forward. But anyway, as usual, before we get into the book, we like to talk about what we're obsessing about this week. So Corinne? I have a lot of things that I'm obsessing over this week. I felt like my May reading wasn't particularly impressive to me. Like I've read things, but nothing really stuck out to me. And then every single book I've read in June, starting with this book, which came out on June 1st, has been five stars, incredible. And by, when I say incredible, I mean, yeah, not every single one was a perfect book, but I loved reading all of them, which for me is how I get five stars. If it just really delighted me, I give it a five star rating on Goodreads and every single thing I've read has been that. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things, one of which you have also read. So I'm going to let you talk about it so I don't totally monopolize this conversation. <laughs> but the first one is the newest book by Taylor Jenkins Reid, Malibu Rising. If you're not familiar with Taylor Jenkins Reid, her name specifically, probably heard of two of her most famous other books, which are The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo and Daisy Jones and the Six. This is, again, her newest book that just came out, and it is about a group of siblings living in Malibu in the 1980s, and it's set on the evening of their infamous summer party, and it jumps back and forth between their childhood upbringing and the day starting at 7 a.m. leading up to this party. And it's just brilliantly done a great look at familial trauma and generational trauma and sibling interactions. One of my catnips generally is just that generational stories. I find them very compelling and interesting. And this was just a good balance of of fun, but also really kind of diving into a lot of that. I loved all of the four siblings. They're all very flawed. She just has such a great knack for writing characters like that. And in a fun twist, which I knew but forgot and then remembered as I was rereading, those three books that I mentioned of Taylor Jenkins reads are all interconnected. So the father of the four siblings is one of Evelyn Hugo's seven husbands. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it all kind of ties together. And then there's also references, just kind of like, if you know, you know, uh, references to characters from Daisy Jones and also Evelyn Hugo. So it's just really cool that she has this fictional interwoven universe that's they're not dependent on each other at all. You don't need to know that. And Evelyn Hugo's name is never listed in the book. But when you go back, you're like, why does this name sound so familiar? And oh, yeah, McReva is one of her husbands. So it's it's really interesting to how she's tied that all together and just really fun and clever. And the premise did not interest me going in, like surfer siblings in the 80s. Don't care. I thought, <laughs> but I was wrong. So take all my money, TJR. You're brilliant. I loved it. It was so good. I also read The Queer Principles of Kit Webb by Kat Sebastian. Kat Sebastian is uh, really made a name for herself of writing queer historical romances. And this is her first trade paperback. So it's the first one with like a cutesy cover versus a standard historical romance. So it's getting a little bit more buzz than some of her other mass market paperback books have gotten. Uh, but I just really like this book a lot. It was about the son of a duke who, for reasons, needs to get revenge on his father. And he seeks out the skill set of this criminal highwayman, Kit. And 
it, it kind of has some hijinks in it. They both want to get revenge on this Duke for their own personal reasons. And they just happen to fall in love along the way. And it's just really charming. I loved both Kit and Percy, who's the son of the Duke. It was one of those books where it's like you're they're longing for each other so intently, but they're just like in the room at the same time, all the time, just like staring at each other unabashedly. It just had a lot of like heart and feeling. It's the best kind of pining. Oh, I was like endlessly charmed by it. Everyone's just like watching them like stare at each other all the time. And again, you have to suspend some disbelief because this is set in the 1700s and whether or not everyone would just all their people around them would be cool with them being into each other as two guys and in that time frame. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's still just fun to just roll with it. So I really loved that. It was just a great breath of fresh air and super hot and steamy, which we always love. And then the last one I want to talk about is the newest book by writer duo Christina Lauren, which is The Soulmate Equation. We've talked about Christina Lauren before on the podcast. We covered Autobiography, which is their random one YA book, which we love. They actually have a couple of them. Do they? Yeah. What else? Uh, there is Sublime, which is kind of like a ghost story thing. And there's also The House, which is like a haunted house. Oh. I didn't like Sublime, but I did like The House. So Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't know that. I mostly know <laughs> them for their romances. Mm-hmm. And Tasia and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I know because we've talked about it, are big fans of their early work, which are really kind of like with plot type books if we're going to be honest here <laughs> this is like super steamy but like really good characterization and kind of fun stories involved there their more recent books as they've gone more quote-unquote mainstream have really been hit or miss for me mostly miss if i'm being honest so it didn't really have great expectations going into the soulmate equation which is about this it's a dating app that you have to submit a spit sample for and they do genetic testing to match you up with someone you're genetically compatible with. And the two people who are matched up are the founder of the company. And then this girl who they've, they've known each other and they both kind of don't like each other. And then because they're this soulmate level diamond level match, they kind of see where it goes. And I loved it. It was a really lovely romance. The main female protagonist is a single mother and he was just really great with her kid. And like, I, I was just, it snuck up on me. And I've had to do a lot of self-reflection of was this actually good or was it just good because their more recent stuff hasn't been great. But I think it actually is very, very good. I liked it a lot. Had a little more steam than some of their more recent stuff, which I appreciated. Not anywhere near their earlier stuff, but that that's fine. I just want something more. And it was just a really good story. It was well-written. I... I would rather they write one book a year and have it be great like this other than rather than do what they're doing now, which is write two or three books a year and have most of them be just very aggressively fine. That was a delightful surprise. I I was thrilled that I liked it as much as I did. And then my other most recent obsession is a book I just finished, but you finished it before me. So I'll let you talk about it. It was so good. So it's Neon Gods by Katie Robert, which is the first book in a planned um, duology. The next one is going to be Electric Idol, but it's basically a Hades and Persephone retelling that is in like a contemporary setting and there's no magic or anything. It's just kind of like this underground war. It's like the city that is ruled by 13 quote unquote gods that aren't actually gods. They're basically like mafia bosses is kind of what it, it, it feels like. But um. 
Yeah, it's it's really good. It is pretty much straight up erotica. Uh, Katie Robert, that's that's her bread and butter, and she's very good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I really like about the couple of books of hers that I've read is that I think she handles uh, kink really well. You can read about kink in books like, you know, Fifty Shades of Whatever, and it is terrible because, like, the consent is all messed up. It is not an accurate depiction. It's very dangerous for people who don't know what they're getting into and and read this. And they're like, oh, it's sexy. I want to try this. And then they end up hurting themselves and other people because they're not following the, (laughs) like, the kink rules, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Consent is a very, very important factor of this. And Katie Robert, that's something that she really drives home and she's really good about. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's real, real sexy, but it's also like surprisingly emotional. Like I was kind of going into it expecting just like a porn fest, which is fine. Yeah. There's a time and a place and we like that. <laughs> right. I was like, Oh, but my heart hurts too. Like, no, that was what was most surprising about it. It was like, how dare <laughs> this make me feel this much? I was not prepared. Right. And even the plot stuff had me like on the edge of my seat, like stressed out, waiting for what's going to happen. So yeah, yeah, it was great. I would highly recommend it. If you're open to reading sexy stuff, you should totally give that a try. I also read The Charm Offensive. I got a an arc of it by Alison Cochran, I believe. Yeah. And it is about a, a The Bachelor type of dating show where the guy, the the quote-unquote bachelor, kind of falls in love with his male producer. So it is like their, their whole thing while the show is happening. And there's lots of drama, but it's also very fun and very funny and really, really sweet. I loved it a whole lot. It's not out yet until September, I think. September. Yeah, yeah it was really good. So check it out when it comes out. Yeah, it's getting Super rave reviews. I mean, obviously you said you loved it too. I also have the advanced copy and I usually like, I've been trying to wait on mine till closer to pub date. So when I can like, I can talk about it and publish my review sooner, but I, I don't think I can hold off. I think I'm going to start it this week because it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I was, I was completely shocked. I mean, you know, expecting just a fun rom-com thing, but sure. it was really great. I, I loved it. And then the last one was second first impressions by Sally Thorne. You may know Sally Thorne from, the Hating Game, which is now being made into a movie. It's a great kind of enemies, almost enemies to, to lovers romance. Mm-hmm. This one was really good. The, the tone was weird to get into at first, but uh, you kind of find out that that is, you're, you're so in the POV of the main character that that is her tone. That is just her, her internal way of communicating. Um, yeah, that was, you read that one as well. I did, and, uh, yeah. Told me to read it and it was very good. Yeah, she and I saw like kind of lukewarm reviews on it when it was first coming out. And I think it has a problem in that it's being compared directly to the hating game, which is very hot and spicy and like this is not that. I think that's Sally Thorne's curse. Like she wrote the hating game and now nothing that she writes. I mean, according to the people that are obsessed with the hating game. And the hating game is good. Like it there. Is. Yeah. But don't compare an author's works to their previous one. Yeah. I don't expect it to be the same thing every time she's trying to evolve as a writer and the fans really aren't letting her. Right. I think it's, yeah, it's super well written and it's more of like an, a person's like emotional journey. And there is like a very sweet romance. Oh, Teddy, he's, he is such a good boy. I know when we do our book boyfriend awards at the end of the year, we do our favorite book wrap up and like hand out prizes. Prizes, just us saying that what we like. Those are, that's the prize. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations, we like you. 
But when it comes to book boyfriend slash girlfriend, uh, Teddy is going to be in the mix. But you know who else is also really going to be in the mix is my number one right now. It's Jane Sue. So, Oh, my God, Jane Sue. On that note, uh, we'll start off here with a quick book summary of One Last Stop. And then we will dive in and try to rein in our Jane Sue feelings. Because that's my number one takeaway from the book. What a babe. Same. Okay. August Landry has felt alone her whole life and moves to New York in hopes of distancing herself from the decades-long cold case surrounding her mother's missing brother. She moves in with Nico, a psychic, his brilliant girlfriend, Myla, and grumpy tattoo artist, Wes. August initially bristles at their attempts to include her, but she eventually starts to feel a sense of belonging as she settles in with them, and also she starts to work at Pancake Billy's House of Pancakes, a local 24-hour diner. Everything is upended when on the Q train to class, August meets Jane Sue. There is clearly more to Jane than meets the eye. And after dredging up her long suppressed detective skills, August comes to the stunning realization that Jane is displaced in time from the 1970s with little to no memory of her life before and the inability to leave the queue. August and Jane work together to piece together Jane's past, including her nomadic lifestyle and her involvement in key events in queer history, all while falling in love. They eventually realize that the event that displaced Jane in time was the famous 1977 blackout, and in an effort to either send her back in time or finally allow her to be able to leave the confines of the queue, the gang seeks to simulate the electrical shock that led to the outage. It works, and... To August's dismay, Jane is gone. August tries to move forward without Jane for a few months, but one day Jane shows up at Pancake Billy's telling August that their plan worked. And for her, it only feels like she's been away from August for a couple of minutes. Jane moves in with August and the apartment crew. And at the end of the novel, Jane and August head west to California to see Jane's family. So this is one of our most anticipated books of the year. As you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, we covered Red, White, and Royal Blue in uh, back in December of 2020. Because even though, again, that was a new adult book, it, w- it just means a ton to us. And I think with both that book and One Last Stop, one of the things we love about them is if we were to apply our thesis statement for this podcast and how we feel about young adult books, I think that also can apply to romance books generally. And so that's Mm -hmm. fun for us to kind of take a little break from YA and really focus on romances and how much they can do and how much they can appeal to different people and transcend boundaries in the same way that YA can. And so in that way, I do think it's, it's, it is fitting for this podcast because I think those are the two books that, types of books that we gravitate towards are romance in YA. And uh, I think a lot of times they're looked down upon for a lot of reasons. And primarily being that they are mostly written by women. Mostly written by women. Yeah, exactly. And enjoyed by women and young women in particular. Mm -hmm. So I think this book in particular is an example of how just that's so wrong because it can be so much more. And it's kind of funny. I realized like my own internal I don't even know if it's like my own internal prejudice about it, but like I was talking with someone else about Neon Gods recently. And I said, I'm like, that may turn out to be my favorite uh, romance of the year. And someone goes, well, over one last stop. And I'm like, I don't even think of one last stop as a romance because there's so many other things going on, which is great and true. And it doesn't follow the very formulaic romance standard in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, 
why am I trying to say that this isn't a romance? It is like it totally, it totally yeah. is. But there is so it's much a romance with genre elements, basically. Yes, exactly. So it's kind of interesting how many different things are are at play here. Uh, but at the heart of it is this fantastic love story, which we, I think, wait till our swoon on this. <laughs> It is so long. Both of us have like minuscule notes on the actual book and just the quote section is just out of control mile long. Yeah. But that's not to say that there isn't a lot of other great stuff to talk about in this book. And let's talk about that now. I think the biggest thing for me that I loved and was kind of surprised by is the found family element of this book. It's almost as important as the romance, I would say. Yeah. Um, this one is what I really loved about it is that the side characters were built out so much more than in red, white and royal blue. And it's just a, a testament to how she's grown as an author. I mean, I loved Pez and June and Nora and all of them, but Nico and Mila and what, like everybody is built up so much more. There's so much more depth there. They're developed so much more. I mean, some of my my swoon moments, my favorite swoon moments, have to do with other characters and their relationships, not even Jane 100%. and August. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, like I said, that's just a testament to how much, you know, Casey has grown as an author. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think something that Casey does so well is highlight how crucial queer found family is um, and, and that sense of community and culture within there. Um, just... I mean, even even more highlighted than in Red, White, and Royal Blue. Casey, in particular in this book, has such a knack for really establishing who all these side characters are immediately to the, fa- the point where I like was instantly obsessed with all of them, particularly Wes, my little grumpy boy. I loved him intensely yeah. immediately but like she it, there's not really much about them you're just getting august's perspective on them and then all of a sudden you're like oh wait i'm in love with everyone like everyone is so great and the fact that everyone is queer is such a it's so great to see in a way that feels so natural i read this goodreads interview that casey did which was super enlightening in terms of all the research she did in setting up this world in particular, you know, she said she wanted to have, first of all, queer found family, because it's never the case where there's just like one token gay friend. Like that's right. not how the world works. But we're, we're naturally predisposed to seek out our, our people. Exactly. Yeah. And at the time, like she wasn't living in New York herself. So she talked to friends who lived in New York. and was like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. Like, where would these people live? And that's how she settled on where she's had it in Brooklyn. And she actually, this building that they live in, the sixth floor walk up with Popeyes on the bottom is real. Like it's a, it exists. You can find it on Google maps. I looked at it so I can picture it. And it's like within walking distance to the Q stop that's featured here. So it's all very, very intentional and you feel that, but it all comes out in such a way that is so natural. You don't think about any of it. These characters just exist. And that's right. Because that's life. <laughs> right. And that's the goal of what you want in in stories that highlight queer characters, right? I mean, it's, it's not like an exception. It's the rule. Right. This is, this is the reality. And it was, it was really great to see. I also really like how these characters are developed within the frame of August joining them and being the kind of person that just has no interest in developing that family. Like she, she just had her mom growing up and she felt very isolated and she kind of wanted to remain isolated. 
but she's sort of against her will pulled into this family, like just aggressively loved right from the start. And that's how you get to meet and develop all of these other characters. Yeah. And I I feel bad now too. I did not uh, mention Isaiah, AKA Annie depressant is his drag name. Uh, We've got him in the mix too. So we really have like all these characters that again, it's all, it all feels so natural. Although I was thinking like Isaiah has to have like, I know they say that like he's an accountant or whatever his day job. But he's got, like this cush life. We got like four people crammed in across the hall, and Isaiah's just like living large. <laughs> Love yeah. that for him. Uh, but the way in which every what I really liked about it too is like the way in which every character's identities. There's no like big moment where it's like, and this is who this person is, and that's who that person is. And again, there's actually recently been some discussion of own voices and whether or not that term is is good. And there are issues that have been discussed, particularly this month during Pride Month, and how that is an issue, particularly when it comes to sexual identity, gender identity, things that might not appear surface level for people. But for, for purposes and taking all that into consideration, I think, as we said when we talked about Red, White, and Royal Blue, this is the power of own voices. Casey is a member of the queer community. She is queer. She's non-binary. And that shows here in the way that this is just all so naturally developed. And one of the things I particularly liked, and again, I'm saying this is from the perspective of a cis woman, so I can't really speak to the representation and how someone who is is trans may feel about it, but I really loved how Nico's being trans was discussed and not discussed. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I think you have that that moment highlighted where uh, because Nico is psychic and August asks him, you know, when did you know? And he automatically assumes she's asking about him being trans. And she's like, no, about being psychic. Yeah. And he says, oh, whenever someone asks me personal questions, it's always about being trans. That's like so low on the list of the most interesting things about me. But it's funny because the answer is the same. I just always knew. And then, you know, we're in August POV the whole time. And you know, she she just never thinks about it. Even when she realizes that Nico is trans, she sees the photograph of him at Disney World dressed like a princess when he was younger. And she's like, oh, who's that? And he's like, it's me. And she thinks, August looks at him, his sharp eyebrows and steady presence and slim cut jeans. And well, she did wonder. She's habitually observant, though she does try to never assume with things like that. But then after, you know, they continue to talk about it more, she goes, it's funny, the one big thing out of the way between the four of them, but it's also a small thing. It makes a difference, but it also makes no difference at all. So like she says that she'd wondered, but we never get her wondering. It's never Mm -hmm. like a plot point. It's just like, oh no, here is this person. And so I really loved how that was, was done. I think that's a really good way to put it is like the, it's not a plot point. Right. It's just there. Right. And you kind of assume too that this book starts with the on the first page, the ad for an apartment must be trans friendly. It must be trans friendly. And I was just like, okay, well, I purposely did not read about any of the side characters. Like Casey had posted some artwork she had commissioned of each of them and gave a little character profile. I didn't want to read anything about it, so I didn't know um, anything about the characters. But I was like, well, maybe no one is. I, Maybe you just want people to be trans friendly, right? I mean, that's great. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, maybe this will come up at some point. But yeah, so I had, I was like, I don't know. Maybe someone is, maybe, I don't know. And so that was just really naturally done and was great. And then I think too, 
kind of like to to jump off of that and like the the found family things and just the the naturalness of how queer identity is highlighted. I don't even want to say discussed because that's not it makes it sound like it's let's all sit and talk about this and that's not how this book was. But I love the the fact that a uh, August is a virgin and then how like discussions about sex or moments of where the characters are discussing sex come up in this book. You know, after August and Jane have sex on the train, which we'll talk about because that was hot. She <laughs> like actually like while they're having sex on the train, you know, she thinks about like how she never worked it out in her head exactly what would qualify as sex with someone who has the same type of body as hers. And she just like realizes, no, like this is sex. Like, yeah, this, this is it. And then later she's thinking about how she lost her virginity and Nico being psychic just out of nowhere goes virginity is a social construct, which is <laughs> great. But then Mila says, the whole idea is based on cis sexist and heteronormative and quite frankly, colonial ass bullshit from a time when getting a dick in you is the only definition of sex. If that's true, me and Nico have never had sex at all. And we both know that's absolutely not the case. Nico says, yeah, our walls are thin and I have ears. <laughs> Heading toward her bedroom in search of something to tie up her hair. What kind of safe word is waffle code? Anyway? <laughs> a great one. Yeah. So again, that's just like, that's something to, I've never seen discussed or again, I keep saying discussed as though they like sit down and talk about it, but I've never seen it, the attention drawn to that in a romance of, of any sort. And I can see how that would be so valuable. Well, there's still such a thing in romance novels where, or in a lot of romance novels that, that feature sex. And especially when, when one of the characters is a virgin, like they're still bringing up the hymen shit, which is not a real thing. Right. Like that is still something, and that is like leftover from hundreds of years of bad romance novels. So I'm, it is really nice to see this more more accurate take on the construct of virginity. Yeah, and the idea of of all sex being valid, like mm-hmm. it's it's not. P and V like that. We don't need that. We don't need to be restrained by like what people talk about all the time. And, you know, our stupid like reliance on oh, what base to do it to. And like, it doesn't, right. it doesn't matter. It's about feeling. And, and that's the most important, the more most important part of it than the, than the person that you're with. Like Myla says, um, those constructs are sort of built around the importance of penis. And right. that is not required for anybody to have a good time amen to that <laughs> amen to that but no this is um i just want to read this though because we don't have this in our spoon and it's just so hot this is when they're on the train she didn't think she'd know since she's never done any of it where the line is but this this jane's mouth on her wet fingers every hum and hitch of jane's breath getting her off as much as a touch the give and take of how good it feels to make someone feel good is sex it sucks and August is drowning in it. She wants more. She wants to fill her lungs up. I love that she's in the middle of that and being like, oh yeah, no, there's a sex. I'm having sex. Definitely sex. (laughs) And what I really like too about Casey's writing is, you know, it's funny because as we just talked about at length at the top of the show in our obsessions, you know, we have no qualms about reading erotica things that are very like more graphically descriptive. And I've heard people say like red, white, and royal blue is so smutty. And I was like, is it? Because what Casey does, and I really like, is her 
it's not very hot, but like she's speaking in feeling. And mm-hmm. it's not like technical mechanics. Right. Uh, which is fine and great and has its time and space that we like, but it, it's more about how characters are feeling in the moment. And it's, I have never seen anyone else really write in that same way where you're like, oh, this is really hot. Because it's an emotional act. Correct. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and, and the fact uh, you have this note here too, but it's worth talking a lot about here as well is how queer history is woven in, in this book. Just so good. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, because queer history is again, something that we aren't taught in school mm-hmm. ever. And even as people that are invested in queer history, being part of the queer community, I know things, but I never knew about this uh, upstairs lounge arson attack until this book told me about it. That's why uh, books right. like this are so important. And I love that it's it's worked in and not in like, um, like it could have been almost an academic thing, but since it's interwoven in through Jane's own experiences and things that she herself lived through and saw, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't feel expository. It doesn't feel academic. It feels like an essential part of the story while also being a really good learning moment for anybody reading that maybe isn't a hundred percent on their queer history. But I think it's just so important to know where we've come from and the struggles that have come before us. Yeah. And I think it would have been really easy for Casey to just have, uh, have Jane just be like at Stonewall and like being right. like actively involved in like the one big thing that most people know about when it comes to queer history. But no, she's in New York after that happens. And so you get like the shock waves of that and what it felt like to be part of what Stonewall like led into. And I thought that was really great. And when I one of the things I love too then at the end of the book, and you have this noted in the swoon section, but when they're kind of finally declaring their feelings for each other. August talks about how she got to fall in love with Jane twice. You know, she instantly was drawn to her on the train, but then as she got to learn more about her and she realized like kind of what a quiet hero Jane was. And it's, it's those quiet moments. It's not necessarily throwing a brick at, at Stonewall and like mm-hmm. you know, being actively, it's in that particular moment in history, it's stitching up friends who get involved in scuffles with the cops or with people who are beating them up. It's, slowly witnessing your friends get sick and you don't know why because you the the word AIDS has not been used yet that that disease hasn't been identified yet and even all those moments of Jane on the train where you see people writing about it in the paper misconnections or whatever of Jane standing up for just like the quiet things the small moments of heroism where she stands up for the queer kid on the subway where she protects um you know the older Asian woman or or whatever is happening in that moment. She's a quiet kind of understated hero. Right. And that's so much of, you know, it, uh, history generally and queer history in particular is it's not just one moment. It's not one watershed moment. It's all these things that cumulatively build to get to where we are now with a lot of things. And I, I love that. I loved it too, in terms of, for me, instant love is not my favorite like romance trope. She doesn't really appeal to me as much. Although here we'll talk about it soon. I too was instantly drawn to Jane. So like I get it a little bit more, but I, I liked that um, acknowledgement at the end. And then too, like, Oh no, like I, there's more layers. There's two, I've gotten to fall in love with you twice. I've gotten to know more of you. And so I, I liked how that all played into. It was just really good. 
I feel like a Casey disaster bisexual that they are uh, just basically created this queer woman kryptonite in a lab in Jane Sue. I mean, but I mean, she, she is lab created to make all of us lose our shit. She's so hot. Oh my God. She's so hot. Ah! I'm obsessed with her. I'll talk about it. Well, and soon I'm going to say, I'm going to try to say this soon. I'll talk about <laughs> when I was like, Oh shit. No. Mm-hmm. Sign me up for, yeah. for what's happening here. No. So that was really good. And one of the things you noted too, which we talked a lot about with red, white and royal blue. And one of the things like we really loved is that the exploration of Alex's realization that he's by and how that all shakes out in that book and that was very meaningful and we, we love that so much and it's quieter here because Jane or sorry August knows already that she's bisexual like she's come out like that's just part of who she is so this book is not so much about exploring identity and and what it means and coming to terms with your own identity in the same way but there also are great moments of great moments for August in terms of being bisexual and you have the one noted there that I really like yeah, I think Casey, as a bisexual person, is uh, uniquely positioned to speak on this experience, which is why I love their book so much, because there is so much kind of bisexual erasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this moment on on the subway where I think they've just gotten done jumping between the cars and some guy comments on, you know, he doesn't want to wait while they have to scrape a couple lesbians off the track. And August says, I'm actually bisexual. And it's great because, because you know, bisexuals in relationships or, or hooking up with any gender aren't any less bisexual in that case. And it needs to be said more because you see like bisexual women maybe getting married to men and they're, oh, they're straight. Or you see bisexual women with another woman. It's like, oh, they're gay. Those, those relationships do not erase in any way their bisexual identity. So I love yeah. I love Casey's kind of like consistent and insistent hammering that down. Yeah, that's actually been to like a really recent topic of like fucking Twitter. It's just a hellscape, but mm-hmm. uh, it's been like a recent thing that's come out a lot on Twitter. That, um, young adult author Sophie Gonzalez, who's written a couple of books, wrote this book um, earlier this year called Perfect on Paper, in which the main character a girl is by and ends up dating a boy at the end of the book. And part of the book focuses on her meeting with like the queer kids club at school and questioning whether they'll still accept her if she starts dating this boy because she's previously only really had feelings for girls. And it's a lot of it is talking about bi-erasure within the queer community and mm-hmm. how that's ultimately very validating for that. But like Sophie Gonzalez has been like, eviscerated on Twitter for having the audacity to write that type of relationship. And it's like so frustrating. Yeah. The queer community is, it can be very much a, um, we accept you as long as you're with the same sex basically. But the second you start dating a man, like as a queer woman, you're going to be the topic of derision and jokes. And a lot of it's, there's a lot I've, I've seen it my whole life and it is very, a very real thing. Yeah. So I don't even know why I went on that tangent here right now, because that's not the case in this book, but I feel like the way that Casey writes 
her bi characters. Like that would never be an issue. I do also want to mm-hmm. note briefly, I think, you know, we're using both using, I think, different pronouns to address Casey. Casey is non-binary. Accepts all pronouns. Accepts all pronouns. So yeah, I, I, we like to be very intentional on that here. So I just want to make a side note of that because all of her like official publications uh, use like she, her pronouns. That's where I'm coming from on that. Yeah. I'm just trying to mix it up. <laughs> I like it. It's good. Anyway, so yeah, we love love how Casey depicts bisexuality in her books. It's just great. Always more of that, please. And thank you. <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do think the one thing we wanted to address was some recent controversies. This mostly happening on TikTok, which I'm not on. Deja, are you seeing mm-hmm. this? I've seen it a little bit yeah. on Twitter too. So there's this moment where I think August is trying to comfort uh, Jane after an interaction with a uh, like a racist or a homophobe or both. both um, I think. Yeah, and she says, you know, most people aren't like that anymore. I wish you could see. And some people are looking at this and and being like, this is evidence of Casey's white privilege that you know there's an unwillingness there to acknowledge how much racism still affects people. And uh, it's her privilege to not acknowledge this basically and, and feel like things have gotten so much better, especially now with, with like the uptick in AAPI violence and racism and that this was just basically irresponsible of Casey. Um, personally, I think this is kind of exaggerated a little bit because August does not say Come out into the world now. Everything's cured. Racism and homophobia over. No, she says most people aren't like that anymore. Yeah. I mean, what she's saying is things have gotten better since the 70s, which is just kind of an empirical fact um, in most ways, anyway. Yeah. And that's a big part of the book, too, because Jane is not accustomed to being able to show her feelings for August in such a right. She's surprised she's way. able to hold hands even right. with August on the yeah. train. So yes, in that sense, things have gotten better. Do we have, are we done? Absolutely fucking not. No, there's so much work to be done in both racism and homophobia and just yeah. in, in all of it. There is just so much work to be done. Still nothing is perfect. Um, right. There's still a lot of horrible shit going on. Yeah. But it is a little bit better. And I think that's all that August was saying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I get where people are saying, but it wasn't. Uh, she August is not speaking in absolutes in that moment. Uh, yeah, I don't think that it's a kind of a a willing ignorance of of what right. is yeah reality, right? And that's not you know the the point of this book. Right? I mean, it's not like what we're, mm-hmm. we're not, obviously there's real world events, and Casey does a great job of of building them in in both of her books, and but that's not re- really where this book is is centered in a lot of ways. So I, I get the criticism. And I do think too, and again, this is some something that I really liked, but again, I cannot speak to as a white woman is, and Casey also is, is white, I believe, how Jane is written as a, a Chinese American character. And, you know, she doesn't really talk, touch a lot on that aspect of Jane's identity, Jane ruminates on how like she's heard a lot about, you know, she when she was on the, the road and left her family in San Francisco, she talks a lot about, uh, you know, hearing about like Asian lesbians in San Francisco, like rallying and how that made her feel and, and things like that. But one of the things that I really liked how, is the origin of Jane's name. One of the reasons 
August can't find records of her is because Jane is not her given name. Her given name is I believe is I think how it's pronounced. And at the end, yeah. and at the and Jane is like a nickname she's picked up and she eventually just rolled with it over time. But at the end of the book, I really like that she, as they're going to meet her family, she says to August, like, you know, if if I think I want to start going by you, are you okay calling me that? And August's like, yeah, I'll call you whatever you want. So mm-hmm. I, I like that reclaiming of mm-hmm. her her name because she she does talk about how her parents like gave her the like only Chinese name and then her siblings got more Americanized names and so I liked that aspect yeah. of it yeah I, we were I, we're not in a position to talk about whether or not that's good representation but it felt to me that Casey did a good job of not really like diving into like what this Chinese person felt about being Chinese American right. I don't think that would have been Casey's place, place. either exactly. so. Yeah, so it, it was nice to see that um, kind of intentional diversity in there, though. Mm-hmm. We liked that a lot. I think those are kind of like the big things we want to talk about. I mean, we love like the writing. We love so much here. It did feel in so much ways like a tighter book than Red, White, and Royal Blue. And you have a note on this, too. Yeah, I, I mean, if I have one complaint about Red, White, and Royal Blue, it's that it it could use a lot of trimming. Uh, this book doesn't feel like that at all. Uh, it feels very propulsive, very tight, um, no no fat to be trimmed from it. Um, it moves. I mean, and I think part of it is that at the heart, there's, there's this big mystery happening. So it's, it feels very propulsive in that sense where you're trying to figure this out, you know, and it's not just about um, will they get together? It's about like, can they even be together? Yeah. And there's like a secondary mystery here too, though, which my gripe, I think you noted too, is maybe yes. the same is this mystery involving August's uncle uh, who disappeared when her mom was little. And that's how, why August has had this kind of like nomadic life growing up too, is that her mom has always been desperate to figure out what happened to her brother. I thought that was a really clever way for of Casey to weave in as soon as, first of all, as soon as uh, August gets a folder from her mom being like, this person apparently knew your uncle and like moved to New York, like check her out. I was like, it's Jane. Like It's gotta be Jane. Right. Uh, but I really liked how Casey weaved in the narrative that Jane assumed that August uncle died in the fire that was mentioned. And I, that was really cool. But then I did not like the, like, there's like a fake out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I have August, you know, uncle Augie whiplash in this book because yeah. first, you know, he's missing presumed dead. And then he's definitely dead because he died in the, in the arson attack. And then wait, no, he didn't actually, he wasn't actually in the arson attack. He had left for California. So he's alive. And then wait, no, he's actually dead. Cause he died in a car accident in California. And I'm like, what was yeah. the point of the fake out then? I yeah. don't yeah. like why, why not have him if he was going to die anyway, why not continue with the arson attack? Um, and tie it in that way. It just yeah. it felt weird to have him survive that attack and then just die in a random car accident in California. Yeah. I did like to how though that was a great this the story of Uncle Augie. And I think it's not really said in explicit terms that August kind of pieces together that like he was gay. And then like his family, like August grandparents are like very traditional. We know they're Catholic because they sent August to Catholic schools, seem to just completely like write him off for that. Mm-hmm. And I liked that we get an, a hint of that because that is, again, a lot of times, at least in the past, like that's where a lot of like books featuring gay characters, like that's kind of like always the conflict, right? It's like family 
attention. And so it's like a nice nod to it. It's like, yeah, this happens, but that's like not addressed. It's not the big point of the book. I actually okay. thought too, when it came to Wes and his family cutting him off, I thought that that was like where it was going because that's what I've been trained by media to tell me is going to be the conflict. Like, of course, this this queer character is cut off by his family because he comes out. No, it was just like, he wanted to go to art school and they were like, no, you're not going to do that. So we're, you're completely cut off. They kind of like... Uh, it kind of like tricked me a little bit with that because yeah. I assumed that's where it was going. It's like, no, families suck <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> For sometimes. all kinds of reasons. Exactly. And I really liked when he and August kind of bond over that. And that she has a nice moment of realization about why her mom the way is what is the way she was, because those are the type of parents that her grandparents were and similar to Wes's parents. And that right. was all great. Good book. I liked it. Knew I would. <laughs> Should we talk about superlatives? Yeah, let's let's do it. This one's okay. going to be long. <laughs> All right. So favorite quotes. Let's do our Ron Robin style. Yeah. As we always do. Okay. So I got to start with my favorite grump, Wes. Loved him. So Wes says, he's watching August douse her fries in Cholula with an extremely New England expression on his face. You've gathered us here today to tell us you're boned up for a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Wes is just, he's kind of a little prick and I just love him. I, I, I cannot tell you the last time I've imprinted on a character so strongly. Just immediately. Immediately. He did nothing. He just had a, a poodle name. literally did nothing. Like he yeah. wouldn't even talk to August at first. Oh, I <laughs> loved him immediately. Anyway, your turn. <laughs> Sorry, I was just reminded of me of that, uh, that TikTok, that really popular TikTok sound. It's like, that's him. That's my favorite white boy. Um. <laughs> That really is. <laughs> uh, all right. This is August talking to Isaiah. Does it ever, like, I don't know, make you lonely to love somebody who can't meet you there? Sometimes. But you know that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you have somebody to think about, somewhere for hope to go? It's good. Even when it's bad, it's good. Isaiah lasts forever. Just, <laughs> just so good. Him. I love him so much in a lot of ways too again because i said like instant love is not like the biggest compelling thing for me having like a will they won't they on the side was very exciting for me because <laughs> i loved both was and Isaiah so much and going back to the white boy thing too i really liked how they used Mila's ex-boyfriend as this like total like awful <laughs> white bro the, you know, like, make fun of it? i was like mm -hmm, the yeah. savory vape flavors yeah. <laughs> Oh, so good. It's like, yeah, no, that's, that sounds about right. <laughs> I hate everything about it. Okay. This is August. I'm riding on the subway. Nobody who's lived in New York for more than a few months understands why a girl would actually like the subway. They don't get the novelty of walking underground and popping back up across the city. The comfort of knowing that even if you hit an hour delay or an indecent exposure, you solve the city's biggest logic puzzle. Belonging in the rush, locking eyes with another horrified passenger when a mariachi band steps on. On the subway, she's actually a New Yorker. I just love this quote because I had that a similar moment myself. You know, I, I, living in Chicago, it's not New York, but our subway system is very similar in a lot of ways. Maybe not quite as terrible as the MTA, but I had a similar moment where I've lived in the city for more than a decade and always had to take the bus from where I lived before. And then when I moved to where I live now, I had to start taking the train. And I had moments like that where I was riding the train to work. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in this city now. So there is just something very unique 
to having to deal with the subway and the mm-hmm. idiosyncrasies of that. And I, I loved seeing that as a Chicagoan. Um, it's very similar to New York. So that was cool. Yeah. I feel like I've missed, like I've missed out on a big experience in life, not like growing up in a place that was not big on public transportation. Yeah. I did like riding the train when I visited you in Chicago. That was very fun. It was very overwhelming. I threw you on a rush hour. and Yeah. And I had never done that before. I mean, I, I had taken, I lived in Long Beach and I was working in West LA. And so I took, there was like one train to take there. And so I yeah. did that. And, you know, not the same thing. Yeah. You know, you really have to be pressed up against strangers and smell all sorts of things and accidentally mm-hmm. touch people in places that you don't want to touch them and they don't want to be touched to really like know what that that is all like uh i'm glad you liked it (laughs) all right all right my turn Mm -hmm. all right this is myla and i mean just if you're if you are listening to this and you have not read the book um just know that myla is fucking great she's hilarious um she's so funny all right August, I love you very much and I want you to be happy. And I'm very confident that you and this girl are like faded by the universe to finger blast each other until you both die. I love it so much. Shouts to Myla <laughs> also for being a woman in STEM. Mm-hmm. She is, but also is like living her best life, like in, like wants to be an artist. August assumed she went to art school and Myla's like, I always thinks that. Uh, and no, she's um, an engineer right yeah. yeah she's an engineer she's the one who comes up with the whole plan to like shock uh shock jane back into wherever she needs to go to just to get her unstuck from the train and uh she's super smart and we love that um okay um this is i, I pulled a little quote from this but i just want to shout out to the entire drag show scene annie depressant i love you i worship at the altar of annie depressant <laughs> that was incredible one of my favorite scenes in red white and royal blue is the karaoke scene that the drag show scene was on like it was like the karaoke scene, like to the tenth power. Yeah, it was just it turned incredible. up to eleven. So good, but this is what I like because I'm Wes and Isaiah trash. Because this is what I actually have in my note. I like Wes worship at the altar of antidepressant. <laughs> <laughs> it's Candy by Mandy Moore, and the crowd has about one second to react before she throws her robe off to reveal a bra and mini skirt made entirely out of candy hearts. Oh my God, Wes says, "Lost in the whale of the crowd." <laughs> I love Wes because he's just, he's this stoic, just kind of like deadpan person and, and watching him like just be so flustered over antidepressant and Isaiah, just, you know, oh my God, <laughs> just losing it. I love it. I love it so much. It starts to rain and the candy hearts melt. It was just like, oh my God, it was so good. Okay. Your turn. Uh, this is another Milo one. I mean, honestly, that's wife material, like three kids and a dog material. If she looked at me the way she looks at you, my IUD would have shot out like a party popper. <laughs> so funny. So good. Um, also an iconic scene is the Easter brunch at Isaiah's apartment. Super fun. Uh, this is uh, and eventually like August calls Jane and like puts her on her cell phone. Also shouts to Jane uh, signing all of her text messages. Signed Jane, <laughs> Jane <too. laughs> it's so sweet. Oh, so Jane. funny. Um, where are you? Easter brunch, August yells back. Look, I know I don't have the firmest grasp on time, but I'm pretty sure it's really late for brunch. What, are you into rules now? Hell no, Jane says, instantly affronted. If you care what time brunch happens, you're a cop. <laughs> I love it. And then they, like, take the party to the subway. Everyone's just like, oh, yeah, girl, stuck on the subway. Let's go. Totally. Yeah. All right. Your turn. All right. 
Uh, this one is... Oh, God, I don't know who actually says this. Oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to read it. All right. Sometimes the point is to be sad, August. Sometimes you just have to feel it because it deserves to be felt. I love this quote so much. It reminds me a lot of the the fault in our stars, like pain demands to be felt thing. But I like this one better because these things that, that are making you sad are making you sad because they mean something to you. And I think that deserves to be acknowledged. I think it's a really healthy way to look at that kind of sadness and instead of like numbing it or whatever, uh, feel that because it deserves to be felt because those people that you miss, they deserve that feeling from you. I love it. Yeah. So good. And that's, I'm from Myla. Ah, I looked it up. Okay. What's, what am I going to say here? Oh, I, I'm going to take it back a notch to, uh, not as serious and beautiful as that quote. And I'm on a West <laughs> quote again, because I'm trash. Um, Back for Thursday nights, Wes mutters, but Isaiah has already vanished into the crowd. Oof, August says, you're jealous. Wow, holy shit, you figured it out. You're going to win a Peabody Award for reporting, Wes <laughs> <laughs> That's when, like, some super hot uh, guy who's, like, new on the drag scene comes in to uh, the Isaiah's brunch party, and it's the first time Isaiah's seen him not in drag, and it's like, oh, my God. He looks, I think it, says, it looks <laughs> like someone who stroll off a set of a CW drama. Love it. Anyway. Oh, before we move on, this is just out of order completely. But one thing I meant to mention earlier, but I didn't, and that I really, really liked is the railing around Pancake Billy's and trying to save it. The idea of these local establishments being lost to the ebb and flow and gentrification of, of cities, I just thought was really well done and is is so important and so vital. And the way it was tied into the the movement to try to to save Jane as well, mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. that worked out really well. Yeah, great, great stuff. Anyway, okay, favorite character. character? Uh, shouts to Jane Sue. I mean, it's it's fucking Jane Sue. <laughs> like there is just no. It's it's Jane Sue. Yeah, it's Jane. I mean, I love of the secondary characters. I'm just really obsessed with Wes. Like if mm-hmm. you didn't know already, uh, but no, it's Jane. It's great. Yeah, just I'm. Full on in love with her. Yeah. And then Arc. I have August mm-hmm. because I think, uh, I mean, she starts off really closed off and, and like we were talking about earlier, just unwilling to be a part of the group and to, you know, be absorbed by this family and um, uninterested in romance entirely. Yeah. But, you know, by the end, she ends up becoming this rallying figure in the queer community to save, you know, Pancake Billies or is it Pancake Billies? Pancake Billy's House of Pancakes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ends up being a, a rallying figure in the queer community uh, to save Pancake Billy's, participating in the community, um, loving her found family, mm-hmm. being willing to sacrifice so much in terms of like her like preferred state of isolation in order to help Jane. And also, I mean, she'd been so hyper-focused on school and everything because she just wasn't ready to live her life out in the world. And she just by the end of the book is, is ready to let all of that go and, and accept her family and accept Jane. And it's great. Yeah. I, I agree. I, August is my favorite arc, but I do think Jane has a really nice arc too, that we can just talk about briefly because, you know, she talks a lot about how she, you know, left her family because she was afraid she was going to be a disappointment to them. That's like a huge kind of theme in this book is, 
you know, that's kind of how Wes feels too, like in terms of disappointing his family. And for Jane, it manifested in just kind of bouncing from place to place and leaving. I think she says at one point, like, like being really into the good and leaving before things get bad and to see her at the end then just like entrenched in the apartment life like oh my talking about gender and sharing jeans with nico like and maybe starting a podcast sign me Mm -hmm. up i love it so much but like she's finally putting down roots for herself and is finally going to go back and confront her parents and i'm glad that casey didn't even attempt to show us how that would go given that she is still like 24 25 years old and right. is going to meet her now like very elderly parents and her sisters who would be like in their 50s or so i'm glad casey didn't try to show her going back and like seeing how that would work yeah out. no i don't need to see it i'm just gonna accept that whatever path they take works out well I think red, white, royal, blue Casey would have, but uh, yeah. one last stop Casey did not. And I appreciate that. I do um, yeah. I think that's a really good point that August and Jane are kind of on parallel arcs yeah. here, um, both learning how to put down roots basically. Yeah. That's nice. All right. You ready? Buckle in friends. Boon <laughs> time. Do you want to go first? I would All like right. to know, I've been accused on this podcast in the past of stealing the best <laughs> I logged in to put in my notes here and Tasia had already been done and she took every single one I wanted to find first, but it's kind of, it's kind of good. You snooze, you you lose. You get big, (laughs) you've got the big moments. I tried to then find some like uh, more subtle, low key moments. I think you found really good ones. Yeah. You've got a good, a good mix. Thanks. So why don't you go first though? Cause you've got the big ones. All right. None of them were you. Not a single one of them was this girl who dropped out of the fucking future to save me with her ridiculous hair and her pretty hands and her big, sexy brain, okay? Is that what you want me to say? Because it's the truth. Everything else about my life is fucked. So can you can you please just tell me, am I on a fucking date right now? Jane losing her cool in that uh, moment uh, is so great. So we haven't like talked to you about like how leading up to them finally being together is they realized that like kissing is a way to bring back Jane's memories. And so like... Jane has been directing August during all their makeout sessions to like act in the way that Jane's memory is working of specific girls. So they haven't like had a moment that's really them yet. And so finally August is like, no fucking, I'm going to like go on this date or whatever. She doesn't really know how Jane feels, which is like, I'm going to go for it. And so when Jane loses her shit, it's great. And that leads into one of my favorite moments then too, because again, all these makeout sessions have been like research. And so this is what she says. So August opens her mouth and says, it was never just research. Of course it fucking wasn't, Jane says. And she hauls August in by the sway of her waist and finally, finally kisses her. It's great because it is such a common thread, too, with uh, queer women, like, dancing around. Like, does this person like me or are we just friends or do I like them or do I want to be them? It's It's all very confusing. So that is, you know, nice to see that represented. And I like that moment too, because growing up as I did, being 16 years old, when the seminal film, The Notebook, came out, <laughs> it made me think a lot about Ryan Gosling. It wasn't over. It's still not over. Like That's what it made me feel. I felt similarly, which is to say very heightened emotions and just like right. I wanted to set myself on fire. So anyway, your turn. This one's not actually a quote. Uh, it's just... Jane Sue stopping an entire fucking train so she can get laid as some queen shit. And uh, we stand. So good. So good. Um, this is the moment that I personally, Corinne, fell for Jane Sue, which was this 
subway dance party, which should not work. I should be like August and like so low key embarrassed by it. But I was just like, oh no, no, like I got a crush on Jane because she's so charismatic and so energetic. Also, I chose this quote because as I've said before on this podcast, I love a nickname. So this is what that's. Coffee girl, don't break my heart, Jane says. So August dances. So they call each other coffee girl and subway girl. And I love that. And I really also recommend the audiobook of this too, because the uh, reader's Jane voice is like very gravelly and sexy. And I like it. Oh, man. Now I'm like hearing it in that voice. And I like it a lot. So yeah, that was hot. Everything she does is hot. Your turn. So everything. Let's see. Nico, everything I'm about to say to this guy is a complete and total lie, and I love you and will marry you and adopt a hundred three-eyed ravens or whatever it is your weird ass wants instead of kids, she mutters. I know, Nico says. Did you just propose to me? Oh, shit. I guess I did. Milo opens the door and shoves Gabe through it. I'm so mad at you, Nico says. I already have a ring at home. I nearly died when I heard that. That just so good. I love that whole thing, too, because she's she's trying to distract this guy to get like his badge or whatever so they can mess with the the uh the tracks right and she's talking she's talking to this guy trying to like it's her ex and she's like oh remember that time in the elevator in my old dorm uh i couldn't walk for two days and nico is listening to this whole thing and he's like amateur (laughs) so good okay this is a little a quieter moment where they're talking about like what happens if jane goes back in time and like how she's gonna like live this whole different life kind of parallel to august August lets a quiet moment go by before adding carefully about you're married. In the low light, she can sh- see Jane smile dip downward, a corner of her mouth tugging. I don't know. I hope you are, August says. Maybe some girl finally came along at the right time and you married her. Jane shrugs, pursing her lips. The dimple pops out on one side. She's going to have to live with the fact that I'll always wish she were someone else. I think that is one of the most romantic scenes of the whole movie and <laughs> the whole book. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. Your turn. Wes stares at Annie for a full five seconds and says, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm in love with you. Such a good moment. <laughs> I, I don't even have, like, it's like, yeah, it's just I, good. Yeah, like, because at that point, like, Annie's, like, figured out she comes up and is, like, something is going on. I will help you. Wes looks like he's just going to spontaneously combust here. Like, he can't keep it together. And he's then Wes finally declares it. After they've, like, casually hooked up a couple times, I think there is one moment, too, where after Easter brunch, like, Wes lets the cat out of the bag that he hooked up. Oh yeah, somebody said. I think maybe Nico says that. Um, oh, Wes is just uncomfortable because he slept with uh, with Isaiah after Easter, and Wes is like, "Stay out of my head." He's like, "Oh no, that was just you confirming it. I was just talking shit, basically." <laughs> so funny. Okay, so this is again because I'm trash for Wes and Isaiah. And you know, for the record, carefully August rises. I uh, I know how it feels to spend a long time alone on purpose, just to avoid the risk of what might happen if I wasn't. And with Jane, I don't think I could possibly have found a more doomed first love, but it's worth it. It's probably going to break my heart and it's still worth it. Wes avoids her eyes. It's just, he's so, there's the best and that's not me. You don't get to decide that for him, August points out. And so I just like, I love that friendship moment. You know, Wes has mm-hmm. been very prickly and stand off. He's just, you know, kind of stand off. It's just August in a lot of ways. And that's their like big moment where they have this like heart to heart smoking and joining on the fire escape. And I just really liked that. Oh, wow. I love that Wes is like, like they're both standoffish, but Wes is more so. So that puts um, August in the position to like be the one that wants to reach out. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when you're, you know, uh, 
you're with somebody who is also afraid to do this thing, but they're more afraid to do it. So it gives you like the, the bravery to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was basically August and Wes. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm going to read this last one here because then you have two of which are probably the best absolute swimmery moments in the book. And then you can read them back to back there. This is not uh, anything anyone says, but it's just a moment, which is like such an encapsulation of who Jane is and why she's so freaking hot. <laughs> Jane laughs and the lights come back on. Jane moves first, picking her head up to glare at the lights. And it's so ridiculous, so funny and unbelievable. And Jane, perturbed at the world for daring to defy her instead of the other way around, that August has to laugh. So that's like when the lights come on after they've like had sex on the train. <laughs> Jane's just like, fuck you, lights. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so hot. Marry me, Jane Sue. Yeah, seriously. All right. Um, so August asks Jane uh, if she ends up going back, if she's going to tell people about her. And Jane is like, of course. And August asks her what she's going to say. And this is what Jane says. There was this girl, she says, there was this girl. I met her on a train. The first time I saw her, she was covered in coffee and smelled like pancakes. And she was beautiful like a city you always wanted to go to. Like how you wait years and years for the right time. And then as soon as you get there, you have to taste everything and touch everything and learn every street by name. I felt like I knew her. She reminded me who I was. She had soft lips and green eyes and a body that wouldn't quit. August elbows her. Jane smiles. Hair like you wouldn't believe. Stubborn, sharp as a knife. And I never, ever wanted a person to save me until she did. Uh. <laughs> All right. Okay. And then this last one, they have these beautiful moments of love declaration at the at the end there where they think Jane's gonna go back in, in time. And August is great. That's the one where she says I got to fall in love with you twice. And like we talked about that a little bit, a little bit, but this of course Jane says her voice comes from deep in the center, in the solid center of her chest, her protest voice projected up to the platform. It could wake the dead. Of course, I love you. I could go back and have a whole life and get old and never see you again. And you would still be it. You were, you are the love of my life. I just, you know, we've talked a lot of off air between us about how like red, white and Royal blue is just like such a sweeping epic romance from start to finish. It's really what the focus of that book is. This book, as we said, has a lot more going on, which we loved and is great. This moment, like these declarations on the train, I think are the big big epic romantic moments of this book and it's the letter that jane writes and in, in yeah. leaves in her jacket oh. when she gives august her jacket when they think they're going back it's it's so good <laughs> God. and you know what's great news is casey has kind of announced a little bit more about what her next book is going to be and it's going to be it sounds kind of semi-autobiographical or at least inspired mm-hmm. by her own life events in terms of you know growing up we're in a very like religious community and it's going to be YA. So thank you, Casey. You did this for us. So the next yeah. time I cover one of your books on the podcast, it is actually on theme. <laughs> it doesn't have to come with a ton of disclaimers. Yeah. So we appreciate that a lot. We really, we just appreciated this book and we took a chance. And we said previously, where sometimes we read a book. I don't even know what it was, but we, you know, usually choose books for this podcast that we have read before one of us has read before because we want to make sure it's really good and we have a lot to talk about we took a chance on this one we've taken chances previously and we're kind of let down this one we're like no we're gonna do it we're gonna cover it. it's gonna be great and it was and it's very rare for an author to inspire that kind of absolute trust and casey did not disappoint us indeed yeah so tasia would you like to do the honors of announcing what we are covering next time 
All right. So in a couple of weeks, we are going to be covering Legend Born by Tracy Dion with a special guest, someone who has not been on the podcast yet for once. Very exciting. And I'm just like super excited because I read this book, you know, earlier this year and I talked about it as one of my obsessions and I've just been desperate for Tasia to read it. So. <laughs> I don't know why I, I've been holding off until we, because I knew we were going to cover it for an episode. So I put it off. I, I should have just read it so that this could be a reread and I could get more out of it. But, you know, you live, you learn. Long too. So, I mean, you probably made a good choice. So that will be in two weeks. On July 2nd, that episode should drop. Uh, but in the meantime, if you'd like to find the podcast online, we are at ActYouAge on Instagram and Twitter. You can shoot us an email if you'd like at ActYouAgePod at gmail.com. And if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on uh, Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate that. I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore Reads, Tasia. Instagram and Twitter at RagyCakes. And yeah, until next I'm friends. Thanks for taking this detour into new adult romance with us. Hope you enjoyed it. We did. (laughs) Yeah, we totally did. I will see you back in a couple weeks for a return to normalcy around here with YA fantasy and Legendborn. Bye. Bye.